Pastor Xavier Reese and the sweetness of trials blended with the joy of suffering. George Masson, the well-known blind preacher of Scotland, said this, My God, I have thanked thee a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. I have been looking forward to a world that I shall get compensation for my cross as itself a present glory. Show me that I have climbed to thee by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have made my rainbow. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. If life hands you a lemon, make lemonade. Every cloud has a silver lining. The glass isn't half empty, it's half full. No doubt, I'm sure you've heard your share of well-meaning but trite responses to trials. So how best can we handle the downsides of life? The answer is coming up as Pastor Xavier continues his study in the book of Philippians. Let's join him right now. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. The message is entitled, Be Thankful. It is refreshing. Paul the Apostle is one who was always giving thanks to God for everything and in every situation. As he opens the epistle up, he thanks God for the Philippians. And we're going to see a reciprocal relationship back and forth between Paul and this congregation. So what we want to do is look at Paul's thankfulness for the Philippians, uh, which is comprised of three aspects, and they're found here in verses 3 through 8. Let me read our text for us. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much in both in my chains and in defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is, not, is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affections of Jesus Christ. Paul's thankfulness for the Philippians here is marked by three aspects. First of all, you see the proclamation of thanksgiving in verses 3 and 4. Then secondly, we have the explanation of thanksgiving in verse 5 and 6. And he finishes off with the motivation of thankfulness. And that is in verses 7 and 8. Notice first of all in verse 3 that Paul's thankfulness was based on his remembrance of the Philippians. I'm sure that Paul at this point... It's been about 10 years since he came to the church. He was thinking of how God had guided him and the others to Philippi. Paul was thankful to God for guiding them to the river once they got to Philippi, where he met the women there, Lydia being the prominent figure. It was God who was doing it. We don't just go about our own way. We don't choose our own things. Surely we can but hopefully, as we're walking the Spirit, as God was directing us, the steps of a godly man are order of the Lord, the Scriptures tell us. Paul was thankful for their beating, their incarceration, that brought about the salvation of the jailer and his family. Now, at the time, you may not understand why you're suffering, why you're being afflicted, why is this going on, but later on down the road, you're going to remember God's graciousness and you're going to thank Him. We don't thank Him for the pain. We thank Him for the spiritual advancement of the gospel in our lives. 
We thank Him for making us less like us and more like Him. But notice He moves on to give us the explanation of thanksgiving in verses 5 and 6. Notice in verse 5, first of all, Paul was thankful to God for their fellowship in the gospel. The word fellowship, as you know, is koinonia. It means communion, sharing, sharing in common as oneness. The way we usually think of fellowship is getting together and having a good time. But it indicates a mutual shared interest in oneness. It's not just talking and eating. <laughs> it goes far beyond that. Through fellowship, he implies one with God, all being believers. The visible church body on earth, doing kingdom service by virtue of having been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You see, the context is participation in the service of the gospel as a witness and vessel to reach the unbeliever with the good news of salvation, even as Paul was doing in the Roman prison. You see? The goal is always the same, to perfect you and to save others. Whether you are at home, whether you're at work, whether you're in prison, doesn't make any difference. The evidence is throughout the epistle. In verse 7, at the end, he says they were all partakers and joint partners with him of grace regarding the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In verse 19, he says they were praying for him. In chapter 2, verse 25, by sending Epaphroditus to serve Paul. And in chapter 4, we've seen verse 10, 15, 16, and 17, by sending finances. The Philippians were in koinonia with Paul in the gospel. Notice all the aspect that it touches. It wasn't just to sit down and have a bagel and some coffee. Notice secondly here, verse 5, Paul was thankful for their own perseverance in the gospel. Their own perseverance. Notice their perseverance was in being one with the gospel and continuing from the first day until the very day he was writing to them. Now, Paul knew that not all continued to walk, but in fact, loving the world, they go back into it. He names one person in particular, Demas, when he writes to Timothy. Paul also points out that the Philippians were experiencing some sufferings. He deals with that in verse 27 and 30 of chapter 1. Now, Paul was persecuted when he was there. Now, they were experiencing persecution. Their own perseverance. But notice also, their perseverance in the gospel implies personal responsibility to walk in faith. Human responsibility is a biblical truth and doctrine that is found throughout the scriptures, but only half of the entire truth. The other half is divine enablement, which Paul will deal with in the next verse. The scriptures declare such statements as, Whosoever will. The Spirit says, Come. If any man open that door. Human responsibility is very clearly taught in the scriptures. You cannot escape it. You better not ignore it. But it's half of the truth. Now notice thirdly here in verse 6. Paul was thankful for their preservation in the gospel. First he focused on their own perseverance. Now their preservation in the gospel. Verse 6. 
He says, being confident of this very same thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul puts his finger on the true confidence regarding his salvation and that of all men and women that ever come to Christ. Paul here points out the divine agency of enablement regarding salvation. Paul had confidence in God to complete the work of salvation in the life of people until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the word confidence. It's a word that means to persuade or to be assured. To perfect the Philippians to that very day. He uses that word throughout the epistle. Paul's confidence, notice, was focused on God the Father who works salvation through the person of His Son, not man. Notice first, to begin that good work of salvation. So God initiates by His love for the lost through hearing the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, down and down to 17, He speaks about how will they hear without a preacher and they're sent and faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Each of you, I, Sat one time, as some of you are here, and you heard the gospel, whether it was in a concert, whether it was in a park, or whatever it was, somebody handed you a track, and you heard the gospel, God initiated, and He began to work in your heart. You began to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Then God, by His grace, allowed you and I to be convicted of our own sin and understand our need of salvation by the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. That is conviction that comes from Him. You and I cannot persuade anybody to be saved. God's Spirit has to convict us to be fully persuaded. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, the first beatitude. Those who understand their poverty, their bankruptcy in terms of deserving heaven, forgiveness, fellowship with God. That's a work of God, not man. Then God gives each person the choice to choose, either to reject or to embrace the gospel message. It is a choice. God is the focus. The nature of the work is good. That good work, the word is agathos, perfect and kind to produce pleasure, satisfaction, and well-being. You remember Ephesians 2.10? We are God's workmanship, His handiwork created in Christ Jesus unto Agathos, good works. The work of salvation is good because God is doing it. And as we are in Christ, then He uses us for good works because now we're related to Him. We are vessels of Him. But not only to begin that good work of salvation, but notice secondly, to complete that good work. Very important until the day. But notice the key. In you. There's the key. In you. Paul the Apostle told Timothy that he was persuaded of who he had believed in. And that he was able to complete and to perfect that until the day of his coming in 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul's confidence was not in himself, but the key is in you. The word begin and complete are terms used of religious rites and sacrifice. We are to be a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable, our logical service. The most reasonable thing we can do. We are to present our body, not fashioning it to the fashion of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. George Madsen, the well-known blind preacher of Scotland, 
who has long been since with the Lord, said this, My God, I have never thanked thee for my thorn. I have thanked thee a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. I have been looking forward to a world that I shall get compensation for my cross as itself a present glory. Teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I have climbed to thee by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have made my rainbow. Hmm. Are you thankful to God for the evidence of perseverance in your life that causes you to be more confident in God as well as more responsible and accountable in your own participation and partnership in salvation in the day of Jesus Christ? See, because there's a both sides, right? I don't know about you, but I, I've noticed that I've never been able to put it on cruise control. <laughs> because I'm born into warfare. And I still have a depraved nature. I haven't arrived. Paul will tell us about that in chapter 3. I press towards the mark to apprehend that for which I was apprehended for. Why? Because I haven't arrived. God foreknew us and predestined us, Romans 8, 29 through 30 says. God chose us from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4 says. God elected us according to his foreknowledge, 1 Peter 1, 2 says. God will present us faultless with exceeding joy, Jude 24 says. God tells us that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the architect and the developer, and the greatest example of being a conqueror through sufferings, Hebrews 12, 2. God, through Paul, told the Galatians, Are you so foolish thinking you can begin in the Spirit and now are you going to be made perfect in the flesh? Galatians 3.3. 3. It's a rhetorical question. No. God says through Paul, Unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. This was the explanation of thanksgiving. Incredible. But notice, he leaves the motivation to last, because this is the heart of the thing, isn't it? Why do we do it? Look at verse 7 and 8. The motivation of thanksgiving. First in verse 7, Paul's thankfulness was based on his love for them. Paul says, I have you in my heart. For this reason, it is right to think that God will finish a good work in you. Because he had contact with them. He saw the energy. You see your son. You see your daughter. You see people. And, and people say, well, what do you think of so-and-so? You say, oh, he's a great, he's a godly man. Well, how do you know? Because you track with him. You see him. You hear him. You talk with him. You fellowship with him. You, you work in ministry with him. You, you know. You're seeing the change. It's like your kids. You take a picture. You're going to show people your picture. Oh, and you pull up the picture. Oh, oh, that's an old one. That's not what they look like today. Because they're changing. And you're tracking the change with your children. And so the same the people you're walking with. You see the change. You should see them maturing, developing in Christ, moving on. If they stay the same place, it's kind of discouraging, isn't it? We should expect and demand change from each other. Constantly. You see, Paul was willing to postpone heaven for them. In chapter 1, verse 23 through 25, he'll tell us that later. He says, you know, I'd rather go with the Lord. I'm in a dilemma. It's much better to go with the Lord, but I know it's more needful for me to stay. So I think I'll hang out. And the Lord has showed me that. <laughs> in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, Paul cared about their concern for them. 
And as a matter of fact, he says there that um, he was being poured out as a drink offering and sacrifice, and he rejoiced in that. And he says, now don't bum me out, rejoice in that also. <laughs> How interesting. Chapter 3, verse 2, Paul warned them about the Judaizers. Beware of these mutilators of the flesh. He cared for them. Chapter 4, verse 2, he confronted individuals regarding their carnality. You have two ladies right there, uh, Odia and Syntyche. They had a little problem with each other. He says, you know, I have the same mind in Christ. He already told him in chapter 2, the humility of Christ, emptying himself, others before himself. Love confronts. He cared for them. If you care for someone, you confront them. You don't leave them alone. But you do it out of the motivation of love. This is Paul's motivation. Paul was thankful for their love to him as you get to chapter 4, verse 18 through 19. They loved him. How? They showed it. They sent Epaphroditus. They sent money. They were praying for him. They were involved with him. Now notice, secondly, still there, the second part of verse 7. Paul's thankfulness was based on their love for him. So first, on his love for them. But love has to be reciprocal, right? Now, their love for him. They had been partakers with Paul in the grace by the imprisonment, defending and confirming, it says here, the gospel. By prayers, finances, and also sending Epaphroditus. They were one with him. They were miles away, but they were involved. They were aware. They were asking questions. They were praying. The word defense is a judicial term used by lawyers to talk their clients out of a, a charge. We get our word apology from it. We are to give an answer, a defense, to every man who asks a reason for the hope that lies in us with meekness and fear. 1 Peter 3.15 says, that's the same word. Notice the word confirmation, it's a compliment here. It is a legal term for the factual proof to convince the judge. Epaphroditus had been sent to aid Paul. Paul was convinced that they were behind him. The Philippians were praying for him. We've already pointed that out in verse 19 of chapter 1. The Philippians had sent finances, we've seen. Chapter 4, verse 14, verse 18, verse 10. All of these were marks of love. Tangible. First John says, let's not love in word, but in deed and in truth. When word and deed become one, it becomes truth. Lip service doesn't help anybody. Now notice thirdly here in verse 8. Paul's thankfulness was based on the love of Christ. Here's the crux of it. He loved them, they loved him, but what was his love? He says right here, verse 8. For, the, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul longed for all them with the affections of Jesus Christ. And the word affection speaks of the inward part, like the heart, the liver, the kidneys. It's a figurative term. And it's used for the seed of emotions or feelings of compassion and tenderness. The phrase today, I love with heart and soul. You say, I love you with all my heart. You're talking about feeling something, emotions. Yet love is not based totally on feelings and emotions. Though there's feelings and emotions at the time, right? God's agape love is based on commitment and obedience. And we let our emotions catch up with obedience. <laughs> If you're going to act on emotions and feelings as a definition and a confirmation of love, then you're going to only submit to that which is going to benefit you. That which you want. Paul calls God to witness the genuineness of his love in his heart. Why? Because 
This is his practice throughout his epistles. And why? Because we don't always know our heart. Our heart is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. Only God knows this. So Paul says, Lord, you examine my heart. David says, Lord, examine my heart. Paul tells the Corinthians, I judge my heart and I don't find anything. But if I don't find anything, I don't rest in that. God knows my heart. He'll judge me that day. But notice that Paul expects no less from them in their lives. And pleased that they live by the same love. Look at verse 9. And this I say, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. You see, God never asks you or myself to do anything that He first has not done. Paul doesn't ask the Philippians to do anything that he hasn't done. That's always a principle. It's real simple, people. See, too often we have a higher standard for others than we do ourselves. And I demand more of you than I do myself. It's always interesting how, how ugly my sin looks on you. But on me, eh, it's not bad. I don't have any problem with God saving me. You? I've doubted it sometimes. Right? That's man. Hudson Taylor was interviewing some young people who had volunteered for the Lord's service. And he asked several practical questions to find out how well qualified they were for life that they were anticipating. And why do you wish to go as foreign missionaries, he asked. I want to search to reach across the seas because Christ has commanded us to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature, one replied. Another said, I want to go because millions are dying without ever hearing of Christ, the only one who can save them. Others have similar answers. Then Hudson Taylor looked at them thoughtfully for a moment and said this, quote, All of your motives are good, but I fear they will fail you in times of severe testings and tribulations, especially if you are confronted with the possibility of having to face death for your testimony. The only motive that will enable you to remain true is stated in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Christ's love constrains you. This will keep you faithful in every situation. Nothing short of that. Are you thankful for the love of others towards you and the affections of Christ? They put up with you. They forgive you in spite of your self-centeredness. They pray believing God will change you. And they pray hard. <laughs> they love from the love of God and Christ as they yield to Him. Proverbs 10.12 says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Peter tells us fervent love of Christ covers the multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8 Are you thankful in the love of Christ now towards others, or is it just others towards you? Do you see it's reciprocal? Do you express love? And impart the benefit of God's agape love to others. So important. We are to be known as disciples of Christ by our love. John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you have love one for another. See, this was the motivation of thanksgiving. The love of Christ. Hmm. Paul's thankfulness for the Philippians. It's an amazing teaching for us in these three aspects. The proclamation of thanksgiving, the explanation of thanksgiving, and here, the motivation of thanksgiving. He's thankful. You and I need to be yielding to God, to His love, to be thankful. In the most basic things. If not, we become indifferent, complacent, arrogant. May God help us. Pastor Xavier Reese, 
and an unappealing outlook of a life lived without a thankful heart. More simple truths gleaned from our continuing study series in the book of Philippians. You can pick up a copy of today's message. Be thankful. It is refreshing. It's available on CD for only $4. And by the way, we'll be including everything Pastor Xavier had to share the last time we were together as well. Now that title once again is Be Thankful. It is Refreshing. Or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please, it's helpful that you include the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This information helps us monitor the impact of this outreach in your area. Be sure to tune in next time as Pastor Xavier Reese brings more simple truths from his study in the book of Philippians. Tell a friend and join us then. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com